disguised in progressive clothing, uh, which promote things like broken windows or hotspot policing strategies as a response to the effect of organized abandonment and gentrification of communities of color. Um, and those kinds of neoliberal policies and ways of thinking fuel divisions between um, deserving and undeserving communities uh, in a way that is rooted in criminalization. So we're all too familiar with the numbers that result. There are two million people in cages, seven million people, uh, additional people under correctional control. There are 10 million arrests every year. There are a thousand people killed by police every year. And there are countless lives forever changed by the criminal legal system. Arrests of migrants at the border and in the interior continue to increase, contributing to deportation of a quarter of a million people in 2018. The US spends more than $100 billion every year on policing and $80 billion on incarceration. New York City has the highest police budget in the country at $4.9 billion annually. So those are the numbers we might be more familiar with. There are a few that we're less familiar with like women are the fastest growing prison and jail populations over the past four decades, and the population of women in jails has increased 14-fold over that period. We might not know that black women continue to be incarcerated at twice the rate of white women, um, and that one in two black trans women will face incarceration in their lifetime, compared to one in three black men. Half of the women's jail population and a third of both the men's and women's prison population have a disability, both because people with disabilities are disproportionately incarcerated and because incarceration is disabling. Native people experience the highest, yes, maybe that deserved uh, an accent or <laughs> an extra emphasis. Native people, indigenous people to this continent, experience the highest per capita rates of incarceration and police killings. And half the people who are killed by police each year uh, were or were perceived to be in a mental health crisis. And black women are the group who are most likely to be killed by police when unarmed. And the last statistic that we're probably not familiar with is that a law enforcement agent is caught in an act of sexual misconduct every five days. Sexual violence by law enforcement officers is the second most complained about uh, form of police misconduct, but it's not the second most frequently talked about. Um, even as we're in the middle of a national conversation about sexual violence in the Me Too era. So in the face of this bleak picture, we are also seeing unprecedented challenges and resistance to criminalization. Marijuana decriminalization is sweeping the country, right? Um, decriminalization of broken windows or poverty-related offenses is happening in many urban centers across the country, um, as well as um, efforts to decriminalize prostitution offenses here in New York and DC. Uh, their discussions of abolition of prisons and ICE have made it into mainstream publications, mainstream candidate platforms, um, and mainstream conversations. And more of us are quick to catch on to and push back against proposed reforms that produce change in name only, or worse yet, expand the reach of systems of surveillance, punishment, and control while downloading more and more costs onto decriminalized individuals, families, and communities. We're living in a time where communities are organizing to close jails and prevent new ones from opening, are shutting down detention centers and pushing police out of schools and social services. This week, thousands of people came together across the country and contributed and organized to bail out 70 black mothers who would have otherwise spent Mother's Day in a cage. Not because they were convicted of a crime, but because they couldn't afford to buy their freedom to be home with their children. 
And um, people put their bodies in line also to end the practice of money bail and of pretrial detention. So if you do nothing else today, when you hear from all these brilliant folks who we're going to turn to in just a second, go to nomoremoneybail.org and make a donation to bail a mother out for Mother's Day tomorrow or next week. Your phones, pull them out. I'll wait. <laughs> nomoremoneybail.org. Free a black mama today. Tell your mom tomorrow that was her Mother's Day gift. That's what I'll be doing. Um, so uh, as well, this uh, Penn World Voices Festival is themed open secrets. And we're living in a time where writers and organizers are exposing the open secrets of torture and solitary confinement and physical and sexual abuse, um, sterilization, family separation, shackling of pregnant people giving birth, and warehousing of people whose mental health needs are not being met in jails and detention centers and prisons. We're living in a time where people who have been criminalized and incarcerated are speaking out and leading in their, on their own terms. Um, and where hundreds of people came together last week in New York City to imagine transformative responses to harm that don't rely on punishment and violence to end violence. We're living in a time where we have an opportunity to radically reimagine our visions of safety and the means that we devote to achieving it in the face of mounting policing, punishment, exile, and exclusion. So today we're uh, fortunate to be in conversation with people who are writing, advocating, and organizing on the front lines of these struggles. Penn Writing for Justice Fellows, New York City-based experts, and all of you. So this is not going to be a formal panel. That was the most blah blah that you'll hear. Um, it's a dynamic public dialogue around questions of justice. How do we respond to harm, and where do we invest our resources as a society? There are two ground rules. We're not going to talk over each other, and we're going to challenge ideas and not attack people. Other than that, everything's game. So we're going to start with the Penn Fellows. I'm going to ask each of you to imagine you just got on an elevator with someone you know has the power to make a change um, with these issues. It could be the current occupier of the White House. It could be a congressperson. Everyone could also leave, yes. It could be the mayor of New York City. It could be the head of the Ford Foundation, the editor of the New York Times, or Jay-Z, or Meek Mill, or Kim Kardashian, because at this point, <laughs> who has influence? It's all up for grabs, right? All right. So you walk in the elevator, they walk in the elevator, they hit the button for the 10th floor, you tell them what your top three priorities for change are. Priscilla, go. Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think for me, you know, I, I've, I have had conversations with folks like this. So part of the work that I do in addition to for Justice Fellow is that I'm uh, the vice chair of the Civilian Oversight Commission for LA County Sheriff's Department, which is one of the largest law enforcement agencies in the country and uh, the largest jailer in the world. Every day we have approximately 17,000 people caged in facilities in LA County, funded by taxpayers. Half of those people are there pretrial. Many of them, most of them, have mental illnesses. And I have these conversations with policymakers all of the time. Who are you having it with today? Today. Who was in your elevator? Who was in my elevator today? Uh, you know, I think I would be talking, I think part of the work that I do with LA County is because it's such a huge, um, it's such a huge department, right? If we can make some changes with regard to LA County, then we can make changes with regard to our national populations and international populations. So I, I think I would be talking to um, either the governor or the sheriff of LA County, although I'm not gonna go into detail about, about that. Um, but I think what, what I would say is that we have a crisis of imagination. 
Right, how do we understand safety? How do we understand justice? How do we understand accountability? Right, we cannot police and punish our way out of poverty. We cannot police and punish our way out of sexual violence. We cannot police and punish our way out of homelessness. Right, so how do we have a new vision that respects uh, the harm that is often committed in our communities without doubling down on that harm through caging people? Right, what are other mechanisms that we can rely on to divest from policing? and punishment in prisons. So that's the big point that I would emphasize, is to have a broader imagination that doesn't rely on policing, punishment, and jails to solve what many consider to be intractable social problems, but only intractable because we've decided not to deal with them. And you just hit the seventh floor. Well, okay. All right, just at the seventh floor. So how do we do that, right? So I have about a minute. I'm looking at the timer. So how do we do that, right? I'm, I'm very efficient with my words here. So how do we do that? So part of what we've been pushing for in LA County is to shut down jails. We've just organized to uh, halt um, the creation and construction of a women's jail, which is would be in Lancaster, California, which is if you've ever been to Southern California, it is like a different state, but it's technically in LA County. Um, so we've organized to shut that down. We've also or, we're also organizing with folks like um, uh, Justice LA to shut down what's called a community correctional treatment facility um, because you can't get well in a jail cell, right? We need to be investing in community-based programs where folks can go to get well. And alternatives when folks are having crises to calling the sheriff's department, which tends to kill folks um, who are in mental health crises. Uh, the other thing, the other thing is, the other thing is, the other thing is, part of my project is I'm working on trying to describe how women are impacted by community control, by probation and parole. And what I think we really need to be doing is to radically scale down how we use probation and parole, to change fundamentally the model to support rather than punishment and um, uh, essentially making people compliant with court orders and punishing them when they don't think, do things like report to their probation officer or have a job or all these other things that are you know, nominal um, and not essential to what the actual person needs. So I think we need to be having serious conversations about how we use probation and parole because that's actually the largest population in LA County. We have about 40,000 people at any given time under community supervision. Thank you so much. The elevator just made that annoying sound that I will not replicate. Right. But, um, but what? don't worry, Priscilla, because we're going to corral all these people into a room later, and then we're going to keep talking to them. So, um, Naja, elevator, door opens. Who walks in? Um. I, I would say folks in New York City, some of my New York City community who are fighting to close Rikers right now is who I want to be talking to and Mayor de Blasio. Okay. Can I have a couple people in the elevator? Sure. Okay. But let's just say Mayor de Blasio okay. is the, the one who's a surprise. Okay. All right. Great. <laughs> Go. So I just want to say before I start that what I'm about to share is not my original analysis. This comes out of generations of struggle and organizing and political analysis, primarily folks who've been struggling for abolition for centuries, really, and also more explicitly around prison abolition for the past 50 years. And so what I'm sharing comes from black community organizers, mostly black women, who've been on the front lines of prison abolition. Um, so the first thing I want to say is that uh, prisons, jails, and police, and US criminalizing systems more broadly, are crucial institutions of white supremacy, patriarchy, and class domination. 
Criminalizing and punishing systems do not end violence, they perpetuate it. Prisons, jails, and police um, provide the illusion of safety or safety for some while sub subjecting oppressed people to extreme brutalization, trauma, and premature death. And criminalization and punishment systems um, additionally and continually produce whiteness both as innocence and as property. And so mass incarceration is a function of reproducing whiteness under a particular regime, right, as innocence and as property. And so finally, um, criminalizing and punishing systems are working uh, exactly as intended. Uh, rhetoric of safety or rehabilitation or reform aside. They are working to reproduce the violent social arrangement of power in our society of, and of race, class, and gender discipline, and there's no getting out of that. Mass incarceration is doing what it's intended to do. Incarceration is doing what it's intended to do. It's not a mistake that mass incarceration does this work in the United States. And so for me, the most urgent issue facing us in these conversations is abandoning reform, abandoning the a vision of reform, and practicing, imagining, and experimenting with abolition. We don't need another study on how pretrial detention harms communities. We don't need another study on how being incarcerated reproduces violence and domination. We just need to start, uh, as Priscilla said, investing in alternatives. And so specifically in New York, just to talk about the incarcerated population in New York. Seventh floor. 80% of people currently incarcerated in, so New York City incarcerates about 8,000 people per day. That's 40,000 people a year cycling through the system. 80% of those folks are detained pretrial. So we could close Rikers now, right? We could close Rikers now if we ended pretrial detention in New York City. An additional 8% of people incarcerated in New York City jails are incarcerated on technical parole parole violations, like missing curfew. So we're looking at 90% of our currently incarcerated people in our city who are just being punished and brutalized and harmed, right, with no real, with mountains of evidence that that just perpetuates harm, violence, poverty, inter-community violence, intra-community violence, right, and no evidence that it improves public safety. Wow, thank you, in 10 floors. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, let's pass the mic down this way to Beth. Um, tell us, did you get in an elevator in Alabama? Yes, All right. yes. There. I'm a journalist and I write about prisons in Alabama. You can imagine what that's like. Um, and on my elevator steps, um, head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, Nick Saban, because I'm convinced if he doesn't get involved in this discussion, people in Alabama just are not going to care about prisons. So that would be my dream, to talk to Nick Saban um, about what's happening in our prisons. Alabama is, I think, the worst example in um, the failure of mass incarceration. Our prisons are um, completely overcrowded, the most overcrowded in the nation, the most violent. The Department of Justice just called them cruel and unusual in a system-wide investigation that I've been studying and writing about. Um, what does that mean for people who are locked up in these kinds of places? It means that they live in constant terror, in constant trauma. Um, they are re-traumatized over and over again. The system is broken. It is um, criminogenic. It makes people who are already traumatized and need help worse. 
So how do we address these conditions of confinement in a way that's meaningful and sweeping and not just piecemeal through litigation, which is how it's been addressed since the beginning of prisons in our country? I think Nick Saban, people like you, need to care about this issue because it's all of our issue. It's not just an issue for people that have a loved one that's incarcerated. It's not just an issue for people that work in the criminal justice system. This is all happening on our dime. We are paying for these taxpayer-run institutions to commit violence, to be indifferent to people's suffering, and so all of us have a stake in this, and I think people of influence need to speak out and demand that there be changes made in the system. Until abolition can be a real reality, we have to address conditions of confinement, because I think it is the human rights disaster of our generation happening. Um, I also would like to tell Nick Saban that um, there needs to be more of an even playing field um, across the board in the criminal justice system between um, the prosecution side and the criminal defense side. Alabama has no statewide public defender. That means after you're convicted and you're in prison, unless you're one of the 180 people on death row, you are on your own trying to appeal your sentence. There are no resources given to the criminal defense side of law in, in many states, but especially in the state that I live in. Um, the, the guys that I talk to that are incarcerated that try to appeal their sentences are working in unair conditioned cluttered law libraries that have typewriters and no copy machines. How do they make copies to send their appeals into the courts? They pay the administration a dollar a page which they don't have, or they hustle somebody else that's in the prison that can make the copies for them. So things like that lead to disparate outcomes. It's not about justice, and there needs to be a more even playing field. Well, I think I can understand an even playing field, so think about what you said. Sorry, that's me in, in, impersonating someone I've never met before <laughs> or seen. Um, that was pretty good. Thank you. Um, that's scary. Uh, Kiana, uh, tell us. Um, who you're hopping into an elevator with and what you're you're going to be telling them. Um, I'll probably be hopping into an elevator with Jay-Z. Excellent. Um, reason being, I feel like he has a different kind of reach and following, and he also comes from a certain place and he knows what it's like to have a single mom and to struggle and things like that. Nice. So I'm excited because I've actually been in an elevator with Jay-Z and did not take advantage of this opportunity. <laughs> so I'm going to watch you do this and learn. Take notes. Go, okay. Kiana. Um, what I think one of the biggest problems is for women like me who are trying to raise a child with someone that's incarcerated, we have been left out of the conversation a lot and silenced. Um, the main conversation around incarceration usually is centered around men. But what happens to women who have children with these men? and we're not supported by society, we're not supported by our family. So I think that a lot of women, we need to focus on the policing and surveillance of mothers, especially black mothers. Um, and because that's all rooted, as Nadja uh, suggested, in white patriarchy, capitalism. And also it creates this, this cycle of shame and silence. And we don't know who each other are because we're scared to dis disclose. I'm out of judgment. So I definitely think that's one of the things that needs to be addressed. So what I'm currently working on right now, working on a memoir about my life, um, 
raising my children with an incarcerated parent for over 20 years, but also I would like to see a lot more facilitation of workshops and um, resources for women to learn how to navigate between the quote unquote free and unfree world, what that looks like how to advocate for you know themselves, their family, and how to move in the world and not to be ashamed of that. Thank you, I feel inspired to write an album <laughs> with you. <laughs> uh, appreciate it, we're gonna come back. Jay-Z's gonna get corralled into okay. this room, but we're gonna make him listen to everything else we have to say. Uh, I'm gonna pass it down to the Davids. Uh, just take it away, David. David gets in an elevator. No, start with. <laughs> um, who, which is David uh, getting in an elevator with? Uh, I live in Miami, and I think the most influential guy there is Pitbull, probably. All right. <laughs> Pitbull, Mr. Worldwide. About him. It starts to seem, starting to seem like that. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll address Pitbull. And uh, the aspect of mass incarceration that I've experienced with and, and that has touched me most closely is the like war on drugs and the criminalization of <laughs> mental health problems and, and uh, drug use as a whole. So, And I'm a, I'm a fiction writer, so I tend to think in like stories. Um, and when I was going through all these phases of the criminal justice system, I didn't, uh, I really wasn't looking at big, <clears throat> picture issues I was thinking mostly about myself honestly I was pretty selfish and like worried about myself and and just consumed with like um, with my own thoughts or whatever but I remember um, there was a guy that really helped me this was like a, a pivotal moment for me that changed the way I thought about things um, there was a guy that that really helped me he was like just like a role model of like what life could look like he had been sober uh, a few years and was just, he would pick up the phone in the middle of the night and talk to me if I was uh, struggling with something. He would um, give me rides, you know, all over town. He was just like a model. Um, and at like three years sober, he got sentenced to uh, go like up the road for a crime that he committed years wait years before that you know what I mean and, and me and all the other guys that he helped went to the courtroom to like be like this guy no you know what I mean don't do it um, and it seemed like the judge like believed us listened to us and believed that he was uh, an upstanding member of society or whatever and then sent him away anyways mm -hmm. and um, so it's like that made me ask the question like so what is this really about you know like is this this guy's clearly not he's if this is in the name of safety or public safety or whatever this is a man that is like doing undeniable good and and helped helped me helped a bunch of other guys like me um and yet he's still going away um so from there that was like the initial like something something is is really up here um this doesn't seem like uh this is is really what would, what it seems so um thanks people um <laughs> I, uh, what, and what also can I just do like, about this? This is awful. Just like how, uh, just once you get branded as like a felon or whatever, how hard it is to rent uh, an apartment or get a job or go to school. And like, I when I was trying to work my way back into school um, after going to community college and trying to go to get a bachelor's, like I had to go in there and like, I mean, I just went into the all these dean's offices and just like pleaded my case, right? Um, and they finally let me in, but they let me in like on a whole different kind of probation, like where I was on academic probation no matter what, and I wasn't allowed in the dorms um, and all this stuff. And like, 
I've always done okay in school, so it wasn't a big deal for me. But if I, if I hadn't, like, just getting a C would have gotten me thrown out. And, like, what kind of attitude is that to bring to school where, like, you're supposed to, I, I guess, be, like, learning and feeling, <laughs> I don't know, uh, intrigued and excited by learning. But to be worried about all this, like, bureaucracy and, and stuff over your head and, I don't know. Um, so, yeah. Pitbull, I appreciate make that. Make it better. I, I, think, I think I'm going to think about how to do that with all my Pitbull cash. <laughs> uh, David, tell us who you got into an elevator with. Hi, I'm David Heska Wombly Wyden, and uh, I have, I should say, while I'm waiting to get on the elevator, I wasn't nervous here today until I saw Jennifer Egan uh, sitting over there, uh, and uh, I, I just, last month, I sat with my friend Tommy Orange in a dive bar in Denver talking about a visit from the Goon Squad until late in the evening, so, and he cites it as the major influence on his work, so, I know, I know, so, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna depart from my prepared comments. I have three people in the elevator with me, of Colorado Governor Jared Polis, I have Mitch McConnell, and I I have, uh, yeah, and I have Nancy Pelosi. I'm going to tell you why I have, I know, it's a scary, yeah, trust me, I know. I'm going to tell you why I have uh, Governor uh, Jared Polis of Colorado in the elevator with me. Uh, four days ago, I received a phone call that every parent fears. My, ex, my, my 11-year-old son, Sasha, is a student at STEM School Highlands Ranch. My ex-wife called me screaming, there's a shooting at the school, we can't reach Sasha. I race to the school, and we cannot reach my son uh, for five hours. My son was in the school shooting, huddled in a closet with his teacher with a tennis racket, so if the shooters came in, they'd be able to fight them off. For 20 minutes, he was in a darkened room hearing boom, 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 shots go off, not knowing if he's going to live or die. The door opens. He doesn't know if he's going to see the shooter, but it was the SWAT team. This was just four days ago. This is my son. We need rational gun control laws and mental health programs for troubled youth. I lived the nightmare. This was literally, it's, it's we're still traumatized, we're still dealing with it. Uh, so I know this is slightly off topic, but this is something that, you know, again, is, is a major deal in Colorado. You think it's never going to happen to you, but it did happen. Let me now return, since we're on the fifth floor here, uh, to my prepared comments. Uh, I am deeply concerned with issues of criminal justice for American Indians. I'm a fiction writer as well, and I address these issues fictionally in my forthcoming novel, Winter Counts, which is coming July 2020 from Echo HarperCollins. And I I am deeply concerned with the law, the Major Crimes Act. The Major Crimes Act, and I'm going to, and this now I'm talking to Pelosi and McConnell. The Major Crimes Act is a federal law which only applies to American Indians, and it means that American Indians who commit felonies on reservations are prosecuted in federal, not state court. They go to the federal court system. They go to federal prisons. There is no parole in the federal system, and because of the Major Crimes Act, which applies to one group only in this country, Native Americans are incarcerated at a much higher level, and it's not. In the state court system, sentences are less punitive, and, and you have probation, you have parole. There is a law which applies only to American Indians. And then when my people come back to the reservation, uh, they can't get jobs for the reason that my friend David here has said, because they're felons. And almost every uh, uh, regulation on reservation says you can't get housing and you can't get a job if you're a convicted felon. So it creates a vicious cycle of poverty for incarcerated people on my, you know, my reservation and others. So the Major Crimes Act, it's, it's almost unknown, even among our policymakers. It's still enforced. It's a law that 
deeply penalizes indigenous people. So I would ask Speaker uh, Pelosi and Leader McConnell to please, please, please eliminate the Major Crimes Act. And I, I address these issues fictionally, again, in, in my novel Winter Counts. So thank you, uh, everyone. Excellent. Well, I'm going to um, stay with you because uh, and the Davids uh, for a second. Um, and then come on down, everyone else, you feel free to jump in. But, you know, we're, we're at a, a literature festival and there are fiction writers and nonfiction writers here and, and the theme is open secrets. And I think I, have, I just have a question about whose secrets are we sharing? Who is sharing them? How are we sharing them? And why, right? So you're writing about your brother's experience. Um, David, you're writing uh, about your own experience. Uh, Beth, you're writing about other people's experience that you're sort of investigating as a journalist. Um, other folks are writing from your own experience or from uh, maybe an academic perspective or otherwise. So what do we need to keep in mind about whose stories we tell, how we tell them, what words we use? Unfortunately, Reginald Dwayne Betts, I don't see here, but you know, is doing a whole one-man play about the word felon <laughs> and about how that has become you know, uh, his name and how he is rejecting that as his name, right? And saying, I'm a person who has a felony conviction, but I'm not a felon, right? So what responsibilities do we have when we tell these stories? And then also, um, the reason I wanted to start back with you is, what responsibility do we have to tell these stories um, about people whose experiences uh, are also open secrets just because we don't talk about them like indigenous people? I feel like I just spoke a lot too much, maybe, but but I, I think we have a, a, a duty to tell stories that are marginalized, and you know people that are marginalized, and not heard from. That is obviously American Indians in this country. Uh, we we are the invisible minority, where where people think uh, uh, we're gone. So I think that artists and journalists have a, a duty to bear witness to what is going on and to tell these stories. So absolutely. So. But do you, and let's just bring this on to some of the other journalists, and I'm going to come to you, Kiona, um, as both an academic and a, a, a person telling from your own experience. I mean, what's our responsibility in terms of how we tell these stories um, if they're not ours? And uh, how do we do that in a way that's respectful and where we're not sort of telling other people's secrets <laughs> um, in ways that are harmful to this conversation? Well, I can speak from um, my point of view, and I'm specifically writing about people incarcerated in Alabama um, serving life without parole. And I wanted to tell the lived experience of this sentence that is used at unprecedented levels around our country. Um, but it, there's sort of not a lot known or talked about, um, you know, getting in people's heads of what is it like to walk into a building and know that you will never leave. Um, so I have developed relationships with the people that I'm writing about, and it's been a long process to unpack their lives, their, their histories, um, how they have reckoned with where they are. Um, and it's been a collaboration. It's had to be a collaboration, I think, to do this kind of writing. So I um, consider them my comrades, not just my subjects. And, um, and I care about them, and um, we have um, a back and forth collaboration on how to present their stories in a way that's truthful and honest. Um, we'll maybe talk more about that. I'm, uh, I'm knowing also that other folks have chosen the approach of sort of making a way for folks to tell the stories themselves. <laughs> I'm thinking, for instance, of Dream Hampton just did a documentary of like a radio show from people from prison, life in prison. They're telling their own stories, and is there a 
a, a value to doing it one way or the other or both. And so it's a, a question, but I do want to ask uh, Kiana, in terms of your experience of telling your own story, um, both as an academic and then in this context more from a personal space, do you have thoughts about telling stories, your story, other people's stories, particularly from what you were saying around the, the notion of that practice is breaking isolation? Yes, um, when I'm doing interviews with people or things like that in an academic sense, I think it's very important to allow people to tell their own story. I'm just the vessel. I'm, I'm not here to change your words or make it sound a certain way to make it sound pleasing to other people's ears. And so I think that adds to um, people being seen and heard and feeling authentic. Um, and not me making someone a spectacle, because I think that's when you talk, have conversations about incarceration or people that have any kind of relationship to it, that's what a lot of the time is done. They're made to be a spectacle. Like, look at them, look, you know. Um, when I'm talking about myself, I think that words are very important in how I'm labeled. And I, for myself, I've kept it a secret for years, just out of shame. If you didn't know me closely, friends and family, I did not disclose. And so now I walk into that power, and we call ourselves regulars. I call myself a mainline mama, because that's what I am. Um, and that's important to me. And I feel like another sort of open secret is how many children, particularly black children, have an incarcerated parent who also hold that secret. Correct. And I've seen that a lot with my children who are grown now. Some are grown when it's still in elementary, where it kind of feels like teachers or whomever like out them. Mm -hmm. And what I instill in them is our family is just as quote unquote normal as everybody else. Mm -hmm. There's nothing different. So to walk into that and not be ashamed of that and also not let people judge them. So, you know, my older sons or what have you, they get in trouble like all kids do. It's this whole, they have another layer of, um, well, do you think it's because their father was incarcerated? Mm -mm, mm -mm. Or do you think it's because you kind of made it okay that, you know, you've kind of said prison is okay because you took them to visit their father? You know, so they don't get the same kind of second chances that other kids do when they have detention or whatever they do. Um, it's a different layer, so I think that's also a problem. Definitely. Um, just ask also about how we tell stories about people when we're trying to make a case for repealing a piece of legislation or for um, making sure that reentry programs, um, you know, act in a way that further education and, and opportunity not foreclose it, um, or when we're trying to make a case even for closing a jail or abolition. How we tell stories without kind of reinforcing criminalizing narratives or romanticizing redemption stories, right? Making it so that you have to have sort of the, the comeback kid story in order to be the one that then gets lifted up as the poster child and then that leaves so many stories behind and, and then therefore shifts how many solutions behind. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, either of you. I mean, one of the things that's really important for me in my work is to center not just people's stories, but people's analyses of their own stories and how they arrive at those analyses through conversation, through collective organizing, through collective struggle, right? And so it's not just experience that gives us knowledge, it's how we talk about our experience and how we organize around our experience and how we arrive at an analysis of our experience. So when I'm writing about the fight to close Rikers in New York and speaking to people who've experienced incarceration and state violence, 
I really focus not just on their story of brutalization, because I agree with Kiana, it can turn into kind of a spectacle of violence and end up reinforcing the relationship between blackness and dehumanization. So I really try to focus on how people have understood those experiences and what they're doing to um, enact their analysis in practice. So for me, that's, um, I think, how I respond to that concern. Um, and, yeah. I had something to say about secrets as well, but maybe I can. I mean, I think, for me, the kind of, the secret of mass incarceration is that it's been for generations um, uh, fueled by progressive, progressive notions of reform and rehabilitation. The notion that these institutions are reformable, right? That institutions of white supremacy can be reformed, not abolished, is like the secret hidden history of jail expansion and prison expansion across the United States. And in that sense, mass incarceration taking off in the 1980s with a return to kind of a punitive apparatus is a blip in a history of prison expansion that was, uh, that was theorized and enacted by progressives who had a progressive notion of prison as rehabilitation. And it's really important that we understand that that, that history is, is, the history of prison and jail expansion is a history of trying to rehabilitate these institutions. And so then the corollary of that is the way in which resistance to mass incarceration and resistance to white supremacy is a hidden history that our communities are robbed of knowing, right? That we've been, folks have been struggling against these institutions for generations, and yet that history is constantly erased and effaced in the face of this like progressive teleology of like we're we're gonna get better. These institutions are gonna get better. So I, I think one of the things that's interesting is when we talk about open secrets, I wonder to, to whom are we addressing that? Who, whom, for whom is mass incarceration, criminalization, an open secret, right? Because if you talk about the communities, right, it is palpable, it's lived every day, right? And so I think beginning with that acknowledgement around who are the experts about this system, and who experiences the systems is, is number one, right? So for me, that means I'm talking about black women and girls. Right, because they, they experience the system from all kinds of different angles, from the experience that Kiana has with you know, the, a great study that SE Justice Group just did, um, found that black women, every, one out of every two black women has a family member who has been incarcerated or touched by the criminal justice system. Or the, the experience that, that black women and girls have with regard to community control. Right? I could tell you all these statistics about how women are 25% of the, of the population that's under community control. They're 7% of the incarcerated population, but that experience is, sounds quite different when you start with the premise that black women's stories matter, that the stories of uh, Latinas matter, that the stories of poor white women matter. When I can tell you the story of Ingrid, uh, who I connected with through Susan Burton and A New Way of Life, Ingrid's story is that she was off and on uh, in and out of the criminal justice system for 22 years, she experienced criminal supervision, either on probation or parole, for 22 years of her life. <laughs> Right, she lost custody of her children because she failed to report to her probation officer. And the probation officer decided to, quote, sit her down for 30 days, right, where she lost her job, she lost her housing, she lost her child. I could tell you the story of Taylor, who is a, another black woman who was criminalized at age 12 because she was in a foster home, she was being abused, and she fought back. 
she got put into the juvenile justice system on an assault charge, which then spun out of, you know, basically created the, the circumstances under which she would be policed until she was 29 years old, right? The criminal justice system was her parent, literally, as a legal matter. The delinquency system supervised her as a child, right? I can tell you the statistics, but the stories matter. The stories of black women for whom the criminal justice system is not an open secret. It is an everyday part of their lived experience, and we need to acknowledge that part. Right, because often our narratives are shaped by people who are completely distant, but they set the policies, and we need to be focusing the conversations toward the people who are immediately impacted, because that's where the answers are. And I think, Naja, that's what you call, and I, I think, I don't really know if I understand this term, but I think I know what it means. I think that's what you call <laughs> epistemic justice, right? Which is basically that we need to reshape how we know and understand the criminal legal system um, through the stories that we tell and how we tell them, and that they don't need to be Again, this sort of redemption narrative. It's just an everyday experience of criminalization every day. Um, David, um, I'm gonna get the last names correct with the Davids. David Sanchez, um, do you, can you just tell us, when you're doing writing about your own experience with those people in your community, do you feel a, a, a push to clean it up? Do people want you to kind of tell the story in a way that has everyone sober and living a productive life at the end, and uh, it's kind of an ad for a 12-step program? Is that? Um, is that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really feel any pressure to do that, because um, I don't, I think ultimately when you read like uh, something that's fiction, you want it to be good, and that doesn't sound very good. Like it doesn't sound like a good, compelling uh, book. But um, I, thinking about the secrets thing, it's it's interesting because I like poured a lot of time and money to get uh, my charges sealed, right? And to kind of like keep it all close to the chest and not tell anybody. And in this program, it, uh, in an MFA program, and like, and then I got this fellowship, and it's like it's just bizarre to me. I don't know, like it's like a reversal where now I'm like speaking into a microphone. Uh, yeah. So so it's I I'm not sure I've fully like uh, reconciled all that stuff in my head quite yet, but it's getting there. I mean, I I just. Like, I wish I had known that this would be something I would do and that I didn't actually have to go get that. It cost a bunch of money and it took a bunch of, like, you know, a lot of time on probation and a lot of amps got money orders to that guy and, and whatever. Um, so, yeah, I wish someone had told me, like, oh, just take your time, paying it off and getting, because I can actually just come here and, and it's uh, whatever. No, I, I hear you, and also it is something that it sounds like, you know, from what you're saying and what Kiana's saying and even what um, other panelists are saying is that there's consequences of it being a publicly known thing, and then what we're resisting here as part of our epistemic resistance or our resistance through storytelling is to, is to bust open those um, consequences. Um, and also to bust open, as uh, you were saying, Nadja, the notion that uh, prisons are about rehabilitation or reform, right? So one of the things that in the past few years in New York City has, you know, again, it's an open secret. And the reason we say open secret is because it is known in the communities that are affected by it very well. But the open secret of what the conditions are behind prison bars, right? That Khalif Browder's story and many, and the stories of sexual violence in, in epidemic proportions at Rikers and beyond have busted open the open secret that prisons are about anything but torture policing and punishment. So I'm gonna invite uh, Fred to join us um, to talk about um, how, or to pull up a chair uh, to this family conversation here, uh, to talk a little bit about how, 
how you've seen that open secret. Um, and just, I'm not reading folks' bios, because you all should be carefully following along in your, um, just to not waste time and keep it conversational. But you know, how, how you witnessed that open secret coming to light, both as a system in the system, and since you've come out of the system, and how your um, pushing stories out, or using stories narrative to shift that to either make it clear that this is not about reform or rehabilitation or to, um, as Beth was saying, try and at least reduce some of the harms inside while we work towards a different world. So at the um, Vera Institute of Justice, one of the things we've um, uh, sort of thought about and have done a lot of intentional work around in the last several years is the fact that there is not enough focus on conditions of confinement, which, which was brought up here earlier. You know, as we've talked about the whether you call it the criminal justice reform movement or what have you, a lot of that has been about reentry. So, how do we better support people when they come home? And then a lot on the front end in terms of sentencing reform and/or keeping people out of the system. The reality is, you still have that vast middle. You know, the 2.2 million people that are there today as we speak, um, and those are horrific conditions. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to to read the um, Department of Justice report on Alabama. And this is a Trump Department of Justice, by the way. Um, and you had a former uh, attorney general who was from the state of Alabama, and yet they don't pull punches in just how horrible the prison conditions are in Alabama. And by the way, they may be worse on the margins, but the reality is you find um, that prisons across America, as with jails, are horrible places. Um, and I think we've long ago lost sight of the fact that when someone is sentenced um, on the prison side, when someone is sentenced, that, that sentence, that deprivation of liberty, that's the punishment. Nothing else needs to be done to further punish that person, and yet, when you look at the punishment paradigm that is such, that is really infused all across American correctional systems, it's clear that somewhere along the line we lost sight of the fact that the criminal sentence was punishment, because the jails and prisons are all about how do you further punish people? Um, how do you further dehumanize uh, um, people in situations. And so we, and someone talked about um, the notion of sort of a reimagining, sort of thinking about a better way. And so one of the things we stipulate at Vera is that um, we'd like to see human dignity be the foundation principle of how our justice system operates. Because the reality is, it's a horrible system, but you replace it with what? What's that, what's that foundational core principle by which you reimagine or erect a much better system? Yes, it should be smaller, drastically smaller. Uh, yes, fewer people should be going in in the first place. But if you assume that it'll be some years from now before we get to, uh, uh, you know, to see the reality of, of, of abolition, then the question becomes, how do you treat those individuals who are now, who are there today? Um, in a respectful and meaningful way, where you respect the intrinsic worth of every human being, where you respect individuals' uh, ability and capacity to grow and change. And if we can begin to think about how we build and erect in the system that way, that's the way you can begin to combat the notion of the horrible prison conditions. And yes, there needs to be much greater light and transparency um, as it relates to showing and exposing the prison conditions. And we need to take the Nick Sabins and the Ed Ogerons and everyone else to those prisons and, uh, and have them understand it and have that be part and parcel to of, of their work in terms of how they um, help expose what, what happens behind those walls. Thoughts? About 
Go ahead. I just wanted to say, as a journalist, and um, I know a lot of writers are up against this when you write about people that are in prison or prisons in general, um, you know, there is no transparency and the entire model is to block you out and to control your access, what gets said. Um, so I realized pretty early on in writing about Alabama prisons that I was just gonna have to go rogue if I was going to be able to tell these stories honestly. So for this project, I started writing uh, to people that are incarcerated in Alabama and they wrote me back and um, I never involved the prison administrations in this project because I knew the minute I did they would try to control my access or control what I was doing so I think that um, nonfiction writers and journalists um, need to think outside the box more um, you know oftentimes when reporters are under deadline they there's a hierarchy that you have to go through in a chain of command to get answers about prisons, but it's so tightly controlled, and it's America's black box. I mean, they're closed institutions. They're like that by design. They don't want us to know what's going on. So, so then let me push further with you, Fred, because you know you weren't always at the Vera Institute. So what was your role um, when you were at DOC and uh, running program at Rikers, or when you were the community uh, affairs uh, person at NYPD? What was your role as a systems player to kind of illuminate and expose um, the kinds of things that we're talking about and the fact that we're not talking about reform or rehabilitation here, we're talking about punishment and torture? Yeah, so exactly as it is now, quite Frankly, I, I thought that, as I still believe, you need actors both inside the system and outside the system to, to, to generate real change. And those individuals, by the way, should be partners um, so that you can find ways to bring some bit of transparency and, and accountability. I've always thought that um, you can use, um, um, the, for those who are in the justice system, that can be an opportunity to intervene and in some ways to kind of counterman some of the dysfunctions um, uh, um, of, of our broader system in terms of failing schools, failing workforce development, fail, failing um, economic development policies in, in neighborhoods that lead to, that, that, that are the feeders to mass incarceration. So I firmly believe on the program side that while individuals are in the system, um, for, for all the horrors of the system, it, it can be an opportune time to focus on skill building and education. Not that that's preferred. Ideally, you should be doing it in a better way, in an efficient way uh, in the community. But to the extent that we have this system that currently brings people um, into these um, facilities, and I don't imagine that that system is totally eradicated in the next 10 years, um, I'm not willing to write off a whole generation of people who are currently in that system. And as someone talked about earlier, we also have this system of perpetual punishment, which we like to call collateral consequences that sounds so clinical. The reality is, is perpetual punishment in terms of all, all the barriers people face um, once they have a criminal conviction. And so there needs to be intentionality with respect to rolling back those, those efforts and those arms. So I think that comes to, to thank you for answering that question. Um, and I, I think it comes to this other open secret of the hidden forms of incarceration, right? How probation, parole, supervision um, is another form of incarceration that's also premised on supposedly reform. Supposedly we've looked inside prisons, we've seen their horrible places, and now we're gonna do something outside um, that's different. Uh, tell us about how that reform's working, Priscilla. <laughs> um, so one thing I, you know, we've, 
we have we had some of these conversations about you know how we should think about reform and I think the idea that uh, jails or prisons or detention centers can be grounded in human dignity um, I think maybe is a little far-fetched in my opinion right so I think we need to be talking about this as harm reduction, right? So how do we reduce harm, knowing that these systems are inherently violent, inherently white supremacists, that they are successor institutions to enslavement? How do we do that work while acknowledging that these systems are fundamentally corrupt, fundamentally rotten, and fundamentally premised on a system of injustice, not justice? So I, I think we need to, as, as Andrew was encouraging us, I think we should be careful about language because in some ways in describing these institutions as potentially able to uh, uh, support human flourishing, I think in some ways legitimizes them and ensures their continued existence. So I think we need to call, uh, you know, one of my friends, he's a pastor, I'm not a pastor, but uh, I like, I like the way be. he says it. He says, you know, he says, look, you gotta call the devil by his name, and I think that that's true. <laughs> so, um, with regard to probation and parole. Yes, call that you know, devil by its name right, also, please. Probation and parole, um, which is called a very clinical term, like community supervision, right? So you're like, oh, that's very nice. We can see you over there. I'm supervising you <laughs> as you go on about your daily life and you're free in the world. That is absolutely, you know, when you when hear, when folks hear somebody, so-and-so got probation, we're like, what? So-and-so got probation? That's nothing, right? That's the way we think about probation. Like, it's a slap on the wrist. It's, it's insignificant. Um, but for folks who are supervised or controlled by the state under probation or parole, and increasingly in California, I should say, we're turning to probation and parole as a sort of an antidote to mass incarceration, expanding um, the populations that are under supervision. It's not, right? There are regulations about who you can see, uh, where you can go, um, how long you can be there, where you can live, for example, Women that I've interviewed, um, one woman was subject was potentially going to be violated because she moved without telling her probation officer where she was going to be living. Um, one person was going to be violated, was in fact violated because she was, I think, seven months pregnant and had been a victim of a violent crime. She was she was violated because she couldn't do community hard labor, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, another person was violated because she left state lines to go to her mother's funeral mm -hmm. without authorization. Mm -hmm. Right, so these are not minor conditions. This is the perpetual punishment that we're talking about. So you say, oh, you know, you can just get three years of probation, but again, you're saddled with uh, 12 to 15 conditions on average. Some people get even more. One woman I interviewed had 10 pages of conditions, right? Plus, you have to pay $50. One woman I interviewed, the moment she got out of jail, her probation officer said, I need $50 from you. She's like, I just got out of jail. I literally had to get a bus token from the jail. I have no money. And he was like, you better come up with it. Right. And then people want to then criminalize people for trading right. sex. I'm right. not sure then what, she goes, where they thought they were going to get the 50 and bucks she, from. And if she goes back to jail, that's a no bail warrant. Mm. She doesn't get out on bail. She's going to sit there, right? And the judge may extend her probation even further. So it started out as three years, now it's six. It was six, now it's nine. And now she's under probation or parole for 22 years because of a, you know, at times, it's in some cases, because of a single conviction. So these are not reforms. They are net widening systems. They further entrench the police and prisons in our communities. People are incarcerated in the community and we need to be clear about that, right? So language matters, description matters, stories matter, particularly for people who are the closest. So I want us to understand probation and parole not as, I mean, it's better than being in jail, but it's still a form of unfreedom. And we should be clear about that. So
So let me invite Lorenzo up. Yes, because we're going to talk about, um, you know, other reforms um, that involve uh, alternatives to incarceration or alternatives, you know, diversion programs. And how are those diversion programs maybe similar uh, sites of surveillance uh, and conditions that also then maybe net widen rather than diverting or not? So, thank you all for having us. Um, Really quickly, to, I'm glad you asked the question about diversion. So we could talk today about law enforcement assisted diversion lead, pre-arrest diversion for folks, right? Whatever, right? Which ostensibly on, in its best form, right, um, is like a 2.0 version of community courts and drug courts. The partnership, city police partnerships to address drugs as a criminal issue has always resulted in some entry into the system, period, right? So that's that diversion. So tricky word. I do want to say this, though. Um, to understand diversion, you have to go back to the Clinton crime bill. And, and the, what so, bill? the Clinton crime bill. Um, and like Joe Biden and like... Let's talk about Joe Biden. Right? So let's talk about Joe Biden. Let's talk about Joe Biden. There's a guy who gets drafted, number one, number two, by the Boston Celtics, 1989-1990. They call him the new Jordan stopper. So Michael Jordan's in Chicago. Chicago's been getting mollywopped by the Celtics for like a decade or so. I'm a Bulls fan from Chicago. Um, I can tell. And... Right, Jordan comes and he's scoring 40, 50, 60 points. He drops, I think, 60 on the Celtics. They draft this guy, Lynn Bias. Lynn Bias came out of, the college he came from was University of Maryland, right? So Lynn Bias is at practice one day and he drops dead of a heart attack in practice. They immediately equate that heart attack to a cocaine overdose. When that news breaks, Joe Biden and all of these white men who live in Maryland and work in DC are in the gym at the congressional whatever gym. And they see it, they leave the gym and they go back to their offices in that moment and they start writing the, drug, the, the crime bill. What we now know as the infrastructure of the drug war. Long comes Hillary Clinton would bring them to Hill and so on and so on. Like it's just like a bunch of, it just happens, right? Clinton follows this up with, with welfare reform, right? And then there's some immigration stuff in there, right? Um, some Native American stuff in there, right? All this is happening with Clinton. Clinton's doing this. The first black president is doing this, right? <laughs> right? And we really, end up with moving all these people who were on, who were a part of, and, and utilizing the safety net, social services, mental health addiction services, right? Alternatives to incarceration. People get moved off of that system, the same people, and they get moved into the Department of Corrections. Exact same population of people. And so we talk about, so, and, and then we start to reverse engineer things like alternatives to incarceration yeah, yeah, and yeah. community courts and drug courts and immigration courts. Diversion for all intents and purposes is like moving the chairs on the, shuffling the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Yeah. 
that ostensibly if we're not limiting the power of law enforcement to like violate, I'll just put this in perspective and I'll stop. There's only one group of people who can stop you at their judgment. Yes. And, and suspend your civil rights at their judgment. Just look at you and be like, all right, your civil rights don't count right now, come here, right? And that's law enforcement. To have those exact same people be the people who house and control diversion programs literally is like watching the, having the yes. fox watch yes. the in house. So that's the, to me, that's diversion in a nutshell. And Thank we can be diverted out of the legal system, out of the system period, and allowed to participate in like full civic democracy. No, and that comes to the point that Fred was making, is that you know people should be able to access education. It shouldn't depend on a cop deciding that you're deserving of it. Yeah. And it shouldn't depend on a cop being able to say, well, I could refer you to this program that would give you full housing and benefits and whatever. What's she going to do for me? Yep. Um, which is what's giving yep. cops more power and also net widening, right? Because yep. someone who they might not have probable cause to roll up on, they might have you know a reason to walk up and be like, oh, well, you look like you need some help. And now mm -hmm. I'm going to pull you into the system because I think you need help instead of just so these um, alternatives to incarceration often are premised on stories of violent versus nonviolent offenders, right? Uh, deserving versus undeserving, which I mentioned earlier. So pull up a chair, Marlon, because I know that you have something to say about this debate. <laughs> this notion that we tell stories about nonviolent offenders to get the changes that we want, when in fact um, we aren't going to get free or get abolition or get to anything that's an alternative or even different from what's happening now until we deal with all of it. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. We were close. Um, so yeah, I mean, the conversation versus violent versus non-violent is a, it, first of all, it's a non-starter, but it's, it's literally like where we are when we think about this conversation around reform. So earlier, Arthur, you mentioned that um, the story of mass incarceration is a story of constant, um, it's a progressive reforms around um, incarceration. So the idea now that we should first work with the people who have convicted, been convicted of nonviolent offenses is another era, another iteration of that. Um, but also think about thinking about secrets. Um, it's not necessarily a secret, but just since we're using that term, um, the people who tend, the people who pack jails and prisons tend to be uh, people of color, poor people, um, people from certain types of communities, right? Where social queer people, queer people, exactly. People from conditions, marginalized populations. Across, across the board. Um, we don't, and these people happen to also commit nonviolent offenses, and they also happen to commit violent offenses, right? Um, and they come from the same place. They're all responding to the same conditions in the communities that they come from. Um, I think the secret is that um, it's easier, it's politically expedient to deal with folks to find some level of reform um, to work with folks who commit nonviolent offenses, largely because. Um, the idea, the idea that a person who committed a violent offense um, are incorrigible and, and will at any point come out and do something to you again. So that means like myself would be somebody who would fit into that court category or somebody who would be considered that incorrigible type person um, that you should all be afraid of at this moment. Um, but, but the other thing, speaking about narratives though and stories, um, largely what, we start these conversations and debates from false narratives mm -hmm. largely in the first place. So that's why we are at this place speaking about nonviolent versus nonviolent offender. 
if we understand what incarceration is about in and of itself, right? Uh, that's where the debate needs to start from. But not only, and then secondly, the fact that, um, as I mentioned at the outset, that the communities that these folks are coming from themselves are—they're coming from traumatized conditions, mm -hmm. right? Not absolving people for their, whatever they may do, but they're coming from something. So we really want to address what's happening to people in communities, and we have to address the communities. Um, and out of these communities are people who commit harmful offenses. They do commit harm to each other, to themselves, um, but they all come from the same conditions, and that's the thing that we don't deal with. We deal with this sort of this. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's, it's a non to me is a non-starter. It's mm -hmm. it, it doesn't it's it's false. Mm -hmm. It's completely false, but we debate about it. Similar to how right now, even you bring in the conversation around um, uh, it was going on at the border and um, the criminalization of immigration, right? It's completely, it, but it sort of happens so insidiously that we don't see what's happening. We've literally, it's a debate about whether or not we should let these people in the country because as the debate has been framed, we're letting in these, these, these terrible actors, right? And now that now becomes the place from which we debate who should we let in, the good people or the bad exactly, people, right? Exactly. Um, and, and and that frames the debate. And I think largely when we, at, uh, you know, when we speak about nonviolent versus violent offender, um, that is not what the debate should be at. Yeah. That is not what the debate should be at at all. Um, and, but that's largely where it goes, where it starts, and that's where the policy now comes from. And that's on the activism side as well. Yes. Just being straight up, right? Yes. Um, when we think about the, what happened in 94, or the 98 even, with the um, Immigration Act um, bill law, um, sadly, there were people who were from our communities advocating for some of these things, mm -hmm. large, right? And they were paraded in front. <laughs> they were, I was gonna say something, but I'm gonna hold that back. But they were paraded in front. <laughs> Um, to say that um, this has happened to these people, this is happening to us, so you need to do this thing, right? Um, and we need to be aware that for those of us who are, consider ourselves advocates, activists, or even directly impacted folks as well, right? To have a strong analysis of what it is that you're speaking about. Yep. Understand that, um, like I, I'll, get, I'll end off here, but I don't believe that everybody, this is small, I can say whatever, right? But like, I don't believe that everybody who's had experience deserves a microphone. Yep. Right? And I'm saying that because there's not an analysis associated with that. Sometimes the analysis is that, oh, I went to jail, I got some, I got some programs in jail, look at me now, ta-da! Uh, and that, that, that does not an analysis of the experience of incarceration, that you were able to do those things in spite of incarceration, right? Mm -hmm. Just to think mm -hmm. about it, somebody who went through, the perp, uh, the, uh, who went through some sort of uh, torture or enslavement, and they say, well, well, look how I am now. No, you, you may have been able to come out of that, not necessarily unscathed as you may think you are, but you were able to come out of it despite right. that thing. Right. Right? No, and right. if we don't have that proper analysis, then we say, then we fall into the place of, well, that prison is a good prison. Mm. Or as we say on the, as we hear in the news, that's a country club prison. Mm -hmm. Right? Do we question those comments? There's mm -hmm. no such thing as a country club captivity. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as that. So I mean, that's what I think about the conversation around the, when we speak about violence versus nonviolence, it's just the mere fact that that is a non-starter. It's a false, it's a false conversation that we built. It's it, we're actually building more debate from a fruit of a poisonous tree. Absolutely. And also recognizing that prison is violence. Um, I'm going to ask, I know y'all are being very patient, you brilliant fellows. I'm just trying to get everyone to the table and then we're going to all jump in together. So Bianca. 
can I just ask you what the social cost is? Pull up a chair and help us understand the social cost in terms of money, but also in terms of human potential, life, the violence we experience of this investment in criminalization and punishment as the response to everything, including conditions of violence in our community that we're trying to survive, right? Priscilla told the story of a young woman who was defending herself against violence in her home, and the response was to put her in a condition of violence in a prison. What's the cost of all of that, not just money-wise, but completely? Yeah, thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so yeah, I think the, the costs are really high. As you say, the costs are... Can you pull the mic closer, please? Sorry. I need to hear you. Hello? Oh, it's, it's stuck. <laughs> thank you. Okay. okay. Uh, I'll, I'll just, I can lean in. Um, yeah, so I think the costs are, are really dramatic, right? So a, a lot of our work does focus on um, how much uh, wealth kind of factors into all this. Um, and part of that, I mean, as I'm like listening to everything that everyone's saying, I'm thinking about diversion programs. By the way, if you want to participate in those, you got to pay for them. So yes. that's only available to certain people yes. anyway, right? Uh, probation, I think Priscilla mentioned obviously the cost of probation. But again, if you don't, if you can't afford that, if you can't pay for that, that's your freedom, right? Bail was mentioned. I mean, bail is literally paying for freedom. Yes. There's no other way to find that process, right? It is literally exchanging money for my liberty um, or asking others to do so. And if I can't afford that, then there goes my uh, my liberty, my life, my job, my family, my uh, children's, uh, my perhaps my parental rights, um, all types of things. And so when you think of those social costs, right, some of those things are... Um, magnified in that sense, right? If I lose my apartment, if I lose my parental rights, you can't give me a value of that, mm -hmm. right? There's no actual um, number that I can, I can put on that. Um, and there's all the costs for folks who are supporting people on the inside, right? What is the cost of putting money on commissary? What's the cost of, of communicating, right? How expensive is it for a mother to parent with somebody who's inside um, with, their, you know, with their children trying to be able to connect um, with those people? Um, with their fathers, with their mothers, with their brothers, sisters, and whoever those folks might be. Uh, and in fact, and so, you know, it's interesting because uh, New York City just became the first city to make phone calls out of city jails free. Um, and I say first is sort of a, a lie, I would say. Um, they used to all be free everywhere. Right. Um, right. We've gone backwards on that, and now we're reversing that. Um, and, you know, in the first day overnight when phone calls um, were made free, uh, phone calls jumped 38%, right? Um, and, and what does that mean? Yes, we can say that this saves directly impacted communities almost $10 million a year, uh, over $25,000 a day. Um, but there's also so many more people that got in touch in that day that have never been able to talk to a support, uh, a person support line or a mother or a father or um, an aunt, an uncle, a grandmother, uh, whoever it might be, right? Um, and you can't put a value on what that line feels like, right? Or what that communication is or what that voice means, right? Um, and it's interesting because, you know, folks can talk for up to 15 minutes a call. The average call is just seven and a half minutes, right? Um, so what is that weight, right? So I think there's, there's an exceptional amount of like monetary costs that obviously weigh in on this system in addition to, um, to the social costs um, that are weighed, weighed in here. And I, I wanted to say one thing about sort of language as, as I know there's been a lot of conversation conversation about language as it pertains to the predatory um, 
actors that act in this space, right? So no language is neutral. All language comes from somewhere, um, and what language we use amplifies those voices. Um, and if we use the language of oppressive structures and oppressive beings, then we are amplifying those oppressive voices and those narratives. And one of the things we do is we use uh, advertising language for the companies um, and commercial actors that operate in this field, right? So for example, video visitation. That is not a thing. Mm -mm. You have never FaceTimed somebody and said, I'm about to visit you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right? Facts? Facts, right? Facts. So, super facts. Super facts. <laughs> so you have never visited somebody in that way, right? I've never told my sister in California, hey, I'm visiting you in 10 minutes. Um, via this device right here, right? What we're doing when we do that is this is language that was brought in by the companies that charge $12.50 for a video call, Yeah. right? They've synonymized this idea of video calling with visitation by using the term video visitation in order to do away with in-person visits, right? To synonymize those two to get facilities, to get sheriffs, those who are also, by the way, taking a cut of all that money who have a, a relationship with those companies to do so, right, by synonymizing those things. And so we need to be really, like, especially when we're talking about, in, you know, in a literature festival, when we're talking about language and what we're writing, really careful about the language we're using to humanize uh, folks, but also not to uh, advertise and market for those who are actively every day dehumanizing them. Thank you so much. Okay. we. Um, in New York City are, um, have the opportunity to engage this crisis of imagination that was identified um, because there is a current conversation about closing Rikers. So you told the person in the elevator, close the damn jail. You told people in the elevator, this is all reform, this is all bullshit, it's all like we need to move to a whole different thing, right? And we're hearing that reentry, probation, parole, division between violent, nonviolent, alternatives to incarceration, it's all different faces of the same coin. So here we are. What in New York City are, is the answer eliminating inflow? completely through decriminalization? Is it that we are of poverty survival and developing alternate responses to the harm that come from the harms in our community? Is it just redistributing surveillance and containment to alternatives to incarceration, to probation, to parole, to other things? Um, is reducing the number of cages overall harm reduction? Or is it leaving something that we have to come back and tear down later? So, I see Nadja is on the edge of their seat, and then Kandra, I just want to invite you to pull up a chair to the table, um, and I'll let you two negotiate who talks first. <laughs> so I think the conversations we're having now in New York City, um, we never could have had, you know, previously, right? Um, I think right now we're in a, a state where we can really transform and reimagine the whole aspect of it and not just, like when I, th I think about NYPD, um, we're trying to create new systems where people don't have to call NYPD in order to reduce harm, right? We have credible messengers and violence interrupters and nonprofit organizations that are on the ground that have been doing the same work as DOC in, in reality when you talk about alternative to incarceration programs specifically. Um, I work 
worked for one for three years where we only took people who were um, <clears throat> facing violent felony charges. So they were facing five, sometimes 15 years upstate. And they would get to do an alternative program, not paying for it with a nonprofit organization where they could get housing, employment, mental health services, substance use services. So really getting at the root causes of incarceration. And I think when we're having this conversation now around closing Rikers, that's what we're really trying to do is reimagine all these systems, decarcerate as far and as fast as possible to eventually get to that zero number. Um, and then even with you know my work with Beyond Rosies, um, all of us are, you know, most of us are directly impacted, um, and we've also done focus groups with women on Rose M. Singer. So I think it's not just about having leaders out here who are directly impacted, but it's us building up the leadership of other people who are directly impacted. And I haven't been on Rikers since 2010 before I went upstate. Our we're going and getting the information from our ladies who are there right now, who were just released last week, or who are there currently, um, to really get information around what, how can we transform this system, right? So so like for the Beyond Rosies uh, specifically, we want to close the Rosem Singer facility. We know that we can decarcerate now down to 100. We know that then we can work further to decarcerate that other 100. And the facility, and, and this is, um, uh, this can be very you know, strange for people to think because we want it to be a trauma-informed facility, meaning DOC is completely removed, uh, first and foremost. Second, there are no cages. It's gonna look like uh, little housing units, right, with a whole kitchenette where children could spend the entire weekends with their mothers and their families. And again, this is for the cases that we still haven't figured out how to hold accountability for, so like the, the very serious violent uh, cases or the serious rapes. We still need to, as a society, figure out some type of accountability structure for that um, as a victim and a, a person who's committed you know 10 years of criminal history I have an extensive rap sheet have spent time in, in counties in Illinois and in um, New York uh, one thing now I'm still paying for therapy every week because of all the trauma I endured um, living in through domestic violence and being sexually assaulted and abused and my stepfather was never held accountable right so I think coming up with you know really reimagining what these systems are going to look like and how are we still going to make sure that um, people who've experienced harm have some type of accountability, right? But how we're not further harming people and how we're really, uh, the root of it is providing the support and opportunities so we don't have a cycle of crime, right? So we don't have this vicious cycle of mass incarceration. If everybody was offered the opportunities and support and the treatment that they needed from the get-go, we wouldn't be in this boat. So I think that's where we're really at right now around closing records. And, and one thing I'll say uh, specifically is one thing I do agree with Fred on is we're not going to be able to make the changes without infiltrating the systems, right? So we need directly impacted people in the mayor's office, in the DA's offices. We need to completely change our judicial system also to recreate a non-adversarial system where a win does not equal incarceration. A win actually equals uh, the support and opportunities and that person breaking that cycle of crime, right? And we can't do that if we're not in those those conversations if we're not the leaders at those tables so i think that's really important too as directly impacted people we need to be at all those tables we need to infiltrate even more and that's in, in politics also you know the more of us that can get into office in politics we can change it then from the inside so that internal external is very important with the caveat that marlon said is that yes has to be analysis that goes with it go you've been so patient thank you <laughs> thank you so i just um Thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I want to say something about the current plan to build these borough-based jails is right now we have a plan to build four new jails. 
and a goal of closing Rikers. The plan to close Rikers is to build more jails? So, no, the plan is to build four new jails. That's the plan. And the jails will, the ground will be broken on the jails next summer. There's a goal of closing Rikers in 10 years, but there's no promise. There's no legally binding document that says New York City has to close Rikers. In fact, that's not up to the current mayor. He will not be mayor in 10 years. Maybe he's running for president, right? Um, it's in, up to the Department of Corrections. And so for the next 10 years, if we break ground on this jails construction plan, we'll have four new jails plus Rikers. That's what we'll have for the next 10 years, four new jails plus Rikers, with no legally binding commitment to close Rikers, right? And the Department of Corrections is ultimately in control of the decision to close Rikers, and we know what the DOC is like, right? The DOC is not gonna wanna, doesn't want to give up control of the con current facilities and isn't going to want to give up control of Rikers and these new jails. So I think it's really important when we're talking about reforming these systems, um, kind of going back to what Fred was saying, um, the punishment is supposed to be the deprivation of liberty, as you said, not the conditions, right? And so at the outset of the emerging conversation around prison abolition in the United States in the 1960s, people were talking not just about prison abolition, but the abolishment of punishment. Right? That was where the conversation emerged, is abolishing punishment entirely. And one of the components of that analysis that's so important is this recognition that in systems that are designed to punish, they all everything that happens in those spaces eventually turns into punishment. Right? So solitary reflection on your crime becomes solitary confinement. Right? The, um, so, and we see that historically in these rehabilitative efforts, how they constantly slide into punishment in these institutions that are designed to punish, not to rehabilitate. And another way of thinking about that, right, is like we build the institutions and then the institutions remain and the will to provide programming crumbles, right? So we see that in the 1970s in New York, right? All, so the Brooklyn House of Detention was built in the 1950s. Um, Anna M. Cross was this progressive Department of Corrections head who wanted to create these new facilities around rehabilitation. She had all these ideas about more humane caging, social services, programming that she's going to bring into the facilities. What happens in the 1970s? The fiscal crisis hits, all of those programs disappear, and we get jail expansion nonetheless, right? And so when we talk about abolishing prisons, I think we need to be talking about abolishing punishment, and then we don't need a single replacement. We need many different kinds of things, right? We need reinvestment in communities, we need transformative justice, we need low threshold harm reduction services, we don't need a single replacement to incarceration. We need multiple systems of support and community investment. And so specifically when we're talking about Rikers, right, Rikers has been under an independent monitor for years. Right, the Nunez Agreement implemented an, imp an independent monitor in Rikers. And ever since that independent monitor has been in place on Rikers, conditions on Rikers have gotten worse. The rate of force has gotten worse. As the population has decreased, right, instances of violence and brutality on the part of the Department of Corrections have increased. The New York Police Department is currently under a consent decree post the settlement around stop and frisk that they're supposed to be releasing data on racial disparities in arrests. Do they do that? No. Right? So these systems that we are implementing to try to reform policing, reform incarceration, are generating a lot of data on how those systems are just as violent and just as brutalizing as they've always been. And 
we know, right, that when the young people were moved off Rikers into um, Horizons, the youth detention facility, they've been moved off Rikers now for about six months. That's not run by the DOC. The, rate of, the use of the rate of force in Horizons is higher than it was for youth on Rikers, right? So this notion that we could somehow have a different, a different agency in control of facilities that are meant to punish and dehumanize and degrade, I think is, is doesn't under, like doesn't fully account for how the system is meant to do that work. And it doesn't matter if you have a mental health professional or a guard on some level, because a mental health professional turns into a guard under those conditions. All right, so inviting folks in the room to join in with your visions of safety, your reflections on the conversations that you've heard, um, and then we'll uh, start to bring it to a close. Go ahead, I'm, I just was looking around to try and figure out the mic situation. There's, I don't know what to do about that. Maybe, um, can you maybe push that mic to the corner and then you can come to the mic? Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> Can I just join the panel? Yes. Uh. <laughs> I work with immigrant survivors of domestic and sexual violence, and um, Joe Biden's the architect behind <laughs> the Violence Against Women Act, and I recently read that the Violence Against Women Act was birthed from the 94 yes, crime, crime bill. Act. Yes. And as an I advocate, tree. I feel stuck because a lot, VAWA has created paths for survivors, immigrant survivors who come here on fiance visas or conditional visas or um, come here on visas that later expire and so they find themselves undocumented. And the only way they can go through VAWA is by working with the criminal justice system and law enforcement and speaking against the abuser who they don't always want to send to jail. Um, or, you know, there's also the fear of deportation. So, as an advocate, I'm overwhelmed by what to support because VAWA hasn't been reauthorized. It's just been passed by the House and it's sitting in the Senate. And I just don't know what to advocate for anymore because I don't want to send more people to prison, but I also care about the safety of survivors, but I don't agree with how safety is being defined anymore through VAWA. So if you all have any recommendations. That is in fact the trick, right? And that's what we're hearing about. It's like you can get drug treatment if you need it, but only if you do it through this program. And you can get education, but only if you get it in a cage, or only if we decide you're nonviolent and therefore redeemable, or um, only if you're not indigenous and being forced into a federal prison, right? So we are all being tricked into that trap. And I think everyone on this panel has been saying we need to bust out of the trap because the trap is leading to more punishment and confinement. But if folks have a specific answer to that question, of course, Lorenzo and then Priscilla. Really, like 30 seconds. So like as, an, as a community at Catal, right, we believe you don't win because you're right. You win because you're strong. Okay. So we make cogent and clear arguments about stuff all the time, right? But usually we're making cogent and clear arguments about the problem and we're not actually strategizing and developing stuff to go after the issues coming from those problems. So, so for instance, like, the criminal justice system only exists for the purposes of catching all the people the other systems throw away. Mm -hmm. So you in the education system, the housing system, the 
healthcare system, the transportation system, at some point there's a threshold, right, that says you're no longer a student, you're no longer a patient, you're no longer a patron, you are now a threat to public safety, you're now violent, you're now something else, criminal justice system. All the criminal justice system is doing is not going out and scooping people up. It's literally just sitting there waiting for the school to put a, a police resource officer inside of it. <laughs> and that's it, right? You, you, and so in Connecticut, I live in Connecticut. In Avon, Connecticut, a kid with a mental health issue, in Hartford, Connecticut, a kid with a mental health issue, and I'll stop here. Avon, that they call the nurse, and in Hartford, they call the police. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, I'll also add to that that there are probation officers in schools. I don't know if y'all Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Which, I, I'm, a, I'm just gonna leave that there. So. <laughs> Sometimes uh, cells. Right. Um, right, to the, to the question about VAWA and you know, requiring folks to have to cooperate with um, law enforcement in order to get the specialized visa. I think they're called H visas, is that what they're called? T, yeah. T visas, T visas, yeah. a variety of different visas. Um, but it, that's common, right? So you also have something called the TVPA, which is the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. That's the T visa. Um, that's the T visa, right? So in order to get that, obviously you have to cooperate with law enforcement. And their you know, domestic violence um, interventions are often structured around in interactions with law enforcement, right? That's the primary mechanism by which you can get some support is if you call the police and invite the police into your home, which can create all kinds of other um, problems, like up to and including somebody being killed, up to and including the person who called the police to try to get some support, um, which is often what happens to black and uh, lat black women and Latinas. Um, so I think we really have to, and, and one of the things that we need to emphasize with regard to these programs that require survivors to interact with law enforcement is to emphasize the way in which that requirement actually undermines public safety. Because it makes it so that folks actually, even though they, they may or may not know about the availability of these visas, they don't want to call the police because of the other problems that will emerge as a result. So we really need to disentangle the availability of these vital resources, which are these visas for folks, to stabilize them, to get them out of very precarious, violent situations. But often they don't want to do it because it may create more problems than it solves by calling the police. So we need to emphasize that it actually goes against the goal of the program, which is to protect survivors and to promote public safety. All right, Marlon, then I'm coming back to the audience and I'm coming back to this end of the table over here. Yeah, um, great, great question, um, great question. What comes to mind is, for me is, has anybody ever wondered like why, and I, I'm going somewhere with this, uh, why prisons are like so violent in the first place? Um, and there are many reasons, right? Uh, one of the reasons why, obviously, is that I think is that prisons don't work. There are places that uh, you have people who have <clears throat> a, a huge amount of other issues, and you put them all in one place, and you say, figure that out. Why in this place with all your issues together? And it becomes this conflagration of people um, who are acting out trauma amongst themselves and each other in a concentrated environment. Mm -hmm. We would listen to jokes all the time about these prison jokes. We watch TV shows and movies and we hear about prison rape and we laugh in their movies and all this sort of stuff. Yet still, we are convinced, somehow we're conditioned to believe when something happens in our community or even to us, that the prisons work, right? It's like a cognitive dissonance. And the reason why I'm going with that is here. Um, there's no question that the other thing that we don't realize when we think about what to advocate for, so we, uh, 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 Andrew, you had mentioned a conference last week they had at Columbia um, by Mariam Kaba looking at transformative justice and other ways to address harm, particularly harm, violent and sexual harm. I was 
Okay, I was there too in the beginning. I didn't see you though. <laughs> there was 400 I, people there. There's a lot of people there. about that conference. Okay. The reason I'm going with that, one of the things about about restorative RJ to restorative justice is that it's not new. Indigenous communities have been practicing these things for as long as I mean for a very long time. The investment is not there though, right? Um, the investment is in this thing that we know don't doesn't work but we keep believing it works, right? So when we think about what to advocate for, there are models that are not used enough, that are not practiced enough, and one that most people, it's a, and that's a, that's a secret, right? That these, these models themselves are quote unquote secrets for various reasons, largely because they're coming from marginalized populations, right? Um, and the reason why I gave that sort of way to get to that point is that there are, there's no question that harm happens, right? And that it needs to be addressed. What I'm saying is that when we, what, we, what we currently have in place, we know, we know it doesn't work, but yet still we're left in this place, well, well, if I don't advocate for this, what am I gonna advocate for, right? It's once again, I go back to what I said in the first comment, is that we have these debates started from completely false places. One is that there are other things that are out there that have not been tried enough, that are tried in smaller, in smaller locales, in indigenous communities, that just in general, we discard or we don't pay attention to it because we already have, as an institution, as a country, where you have biases and we think that things that come from certain populations are worthless and not useful, right? Um, so that informs how we, informs what we think we would want to implement in our own daily practice in terms of dealing with accountability. 